Today we will continue to be in Acts chapter 2. Please stand as I read Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Hear now the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, teach us these words, cut us to the heart, help us to respond. With true honesty, what shall we do? And then teach us to respond, equip us to respond, enliven us to respond with the fire of the Holy Spirit, that your name would be glorified, that your kingdom would come and increase daily in our own hearts and in our community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We are now going into the third part of Acts chapter 2, as I have described in the past, which is three different sections from what I can see and how it could be summarized. As you have in the first portion and bulk of the chapter, you have the explanation and the description and the narrative and the fulfillment of the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then last week, we focused in on the response to the Holy Spirit which is also a fulfillment of the Holy Spirit, the promises of God, and the hope that Israel had and God's people had to being truly cut to the heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. Today, I will go into what I think is the third section, which is a fruit of that work of the Holy Spirit and how it is manifested in the work of the body of Christ. Initially, I planned on doing this in a couple of sermons, but as I thought about this passage and even being convicted in this passage, I am now deciding that I'm going to break this up into five sermons, very much similar to the breakup that we have here by Luke and breaking up into five different ends, though I'm going to tweak it just a little bit here and there. And so today, I'm going to be solely focusing on verse 42. And how that applies to us. And like I said, this has been a um, response. Even as I study this passage, I have been convicted in how to present this passage to you. And I pray that it would be in obedience. And as I've read this passage, I'm like, Lord, what shall I do? How shall I respond to what is said here in your word? What is being convicting me in my own heart? And what is being told to me 
by the body of believers that surround me and walk along with me. Here you have in this last paragraph, you have basically, I see five different sections. And again, it's broken up in many different ways if you look at it. But I see that today we're going to be focusing on being devoted to the word prayer and feasting, particularly the feast of the Lord's table, the, the breaking of bread. Next week, we'll look into the all and the belief that came as they were in all of God and how it brought unity among them. And then we'll be looking at the response and the fruit of the Spirit and the sharing and the serving of the congregation and how the feast was then manifested in their own homes with one another. And then they continued on with praising God and having a favorable reputation among one another and in their community. And then lastly, seeking the increase of his kingdom, the growth and the multiplication, the fulfillment of the call that was in the very beginning to be fruitful and multiply throughout all nations and particularly in our community. Today I'm going to think of and talk about the love and devotion that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And when we consider what it is for us as we try to mimic and copy and repeat the same words, what shall we do? Here we have the admonition to be devoted, that their devotion to the teachings of the apostles, their devotion to the word of God and to the body of Jesus Christ. So take a moment, this is not gonna be an interactive question for you today, but I want you to think about what it means to be devoted. What are you devoted to? Take a moment to think in, your, in honesty, how are you devoted? As you think about the definition of devotion, what are you truly devoted to in your life? In this past week, how did it manifest in consistency to what you said devotion is? Now you may want to quickly answer and say things that would be in line with what God's word is, but truly, what did you devote your heart and your efforts toward this week? In the past few weeks, Jennifer has been showing a video series to our family on D-Day. And today, 77 years ago, um, probably about the time that some of you woke up, if you wake up around 6 or 6.30, 156,000 and I think it was 115 troops stormed the beaches of Normandy. Many of them had already had been um, storming since shortly after midnight, the paratroopers came in during the dark. But then as they took the beaches, it was around 6.30, 77 years ago today. Before they took the beaches, they were given a letter to be read to all of the service people who were involved in that particular operation by Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander for the whole European campaign. This included not only the American soldiers, but also 
the British and the Canadian. This is just the summarization or portion of that letter. It says, your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. And let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. I looked at those words, I remembered those words a few weeks ago as we were watching this video series and being impacted by the leadership that it took to be able to make this campaign successful, which was the turning point in the necessity of the victory for the Allies in World War II. Things would have been tremendously different if it was not for the victory of that particular operation. In that particular video series, there was also many examples of bad leadership and bad decisions, but that even in good leadership and devotion, there was the humility of the same person who wrote this, turns around and actually wrote a letter in case there was failure. And he said that whatever failure we have, it is all mine. He was not certain that there would be victory, but he was ready to take full responsibility. He was devoted to his calling. He was devoted to his particular responsibility. He knew that there would be tremendous loss of life. Winston Churchill When he went to bed that night, he leans over to his wife and he says, do you realize that while you sleep tonight, that 20-something thousand men will likely die? They knew they had a tremendous responsibility and calling before them. They knew that it would not be easy. And I looked at these particular words that he had full confidence in their devotion to duty and skill in battle. He had been among his soldiers, and he had seen their devotion. He had seen that they had principle to duty, that there was something driving these men to be victorious, to do their duty, knowing that they would die. The accounts of many of the soldiers said that they would wake up in the morning during that time. They say, today I will die. Today I will die. Let's go. And then if they lived, they would sleep. And then they'd wake up and say, today we will die. And then they would go and they would fight. Their anticipation and expectation was death, but their anticipation and expectation, driven by their devotion to duty, was to do the right thing, even at the sacrifice of their own life. That's a pretty powerful definition of devotion. They knew, just like Dwight Eisenhower said, The task would not be easy. And they recognized the enemy that was ahead of them. They recognized the enemy would be well-trained and well-equipped and would fight savagely. They knew what was ahead of them. But what are we devoted to? Here we have, as I've said in the past, this is not just mere example. It's not a narrative of just an idea of what the early church would be. This was a pinnacle transformation of 
the posture of God's people as the new covenant was being initiated by the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. These are representative examples and also very practical, real-life, intangible participations of that particular fulfillment of God's work. We are to take this as example, but as instruction, as admonition, and it should define us. This is the passage that's on the website for our church, and much of our name is built into this as a reminder to us that this should be a reflection of our own life, that it should be our type of devotion. If General Dwight Eisenhower had been amongst us in the past three and a half years, would he go as he continues to think about what the battle is like ahead, as we know that Satan's minions are well-trained and will fight savagely, would he report about our congregation that he has full confidence in our devotion to duty and our skill in battle? I am fairly confident that I would not have tremendous confidence in his statement if he did say that, particularly about me. As I think about my devotion to duty and skill in battle. In the past few weeks, the Lord has been moving amongst your session and has been moving in my life. And as I encountered this particular passage, and again, as I have mentioned many times from this pulpit, I am in awe and in amazement at the Lord's providential timing of where we are in Scripture because we just go through books in the Bible and where we are in our life. I have seen through this particular word and the proclamation of his word in many different areas and in the counsel of those around me that there is lack in my devotion and in my skill in battle. I pray that as we go through this passage together, that I and you will be admonished together and brought to unity together I'm actually going to use this passage as a reformatting of how I'm even presenting the word to you this day and hopefully in days to come. But what are you devoted to? And what should you be devoted to? Are you in a position in your life where you are ready to have your devotion increased? Now, keep in mind that when you devote yourself faithfully, that the very cost that these men who went into battle on the beaches of Normandy is very similar. In fact, I would say that even bigger of a battle is ahead for us, for the church. Are you ready to wake up in that devotion and commit yourself to the things that are in these words and say, today it is likely that I will have to die to myself, but I am going to fight with a hope in not our victory, but in the victory of Jesus Christ already accomplished on the cross and in the hope of the Holy Spirit 
that equips and fuels this devotion of duty. It's an interesting thing to look at how the scripture speaks to us because just as we have in the former portion of the passage, it says that they were cut to the heart and then they asked, what shall we do? And then Peter turns to them and says, repent, be cut of heart, basically, to continue on in that cutting of the heart. We cannot, and we have seen, we have the whole Old Testament to prove to us in our own lives that we cannot do heart surgery on our own. And we cannot do heart surgery on each other. That is one thing that many ministers may feel like they can do, or many brothers and sisters in Christ may feel like they're really good at maybe trying to encourage one another to have their heart cut by their words. Words cut. But only the Holy Spirit can cut off that portion of us that is the inheritance of our sin from Adam and our fathers and then the things that we've added to that in the flesh ourselves. This is the response to the Holy Spirit. This devotion is both the fruit of what the Holy Spirit was promised to do, but then also the admonition for us to continue in it. We see here in this particular chapter that Peter is referencing themes and instruction that is connected to the covenantal posture that God has had with his people throughout the ages. Peter is responding with the work of the Holy Spirit and his knowledge of the word to the love language of God. He's referencing things that he has seen, themes and things throughout the Old Testament. You all know what love language is, right? You have it in your own home. You have it with how you interact with one another. It's based upon knowing the other person and then communicating and responding to them based upon who that person is and the things that they like. Recently, this past week, one of my daughters points out a poem that she read and she said, I want to give this to mom. I know there are things in here that, that just would speak to her and that, that she would like. And I want to encourage her in that way. She was responding to a love language that she had learned from knowing her mother and what her mother would like. And then she responded in like to that. A lot of the things that my kids communicate to me are based upon silly things that I've done. And they, they find little trinkets of stuff to just remind me of certain things I've said or done or things that I like. We see it in very quaint ways in our own lives, and I'm sure you can think about those particular ways. You, you gravitate to that when you want to respond in love to the ones that you love. Now, I'm not trying to make it overly trite for us as we consider here. I've tried to, in one breath, tell you that this is the foundations of the church and this momentous fulfillment of the Holy Spirit, but thematically, or at least practically, a lot of the same things are going on here. We are seeing in the words of Peter and now in the words of Luke, connecting us to that love language of God with the covenants, with the posture of the covenants of how God is one who deals with families. He deals through promise. He 
deals through marking his people. He deals through promises generationally, both in judgment and in blessing. And he communicates to us that he loves to talk to us and communicate and dwell with us in that way. If we don't pay attention to that love language, we are going to have a hard time knowing how to answer the question of what shall we do when we run into these words. In theology classes, this is called systematic theology. We look at those particular systems that God has structured throughout the scriptures, and then we apply those particular systems and structures in our understanding of other passages, and then we apply them to our operations as a church and how we do worship and how we do ministry. But ultimately, it's love language. It's looking at the love language of how God has been making himself revealed and known to us, and then we are responding in ways that bring honor and glory and obedience to his name. So here, when we read these words, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, they're not just general disconnected ideas. These are the same things that God has sought his people to be occupied with in their devotion from the very beginning. Even in the word devotion, it's a reminder to us, not so much of our devotion or our lack of devotion, but the word, the Greek word here means steadfast continuance or continuing. When we look at the Old Testament and in the Psalms, we were reminded over and over again of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. And so when we are instructed and admonished here in this particular passage, we are to respond with that steadfast continuance. Is your devotion to the teachings of God, to the law of God, to the promises of God, to the admonition of God, to the hope and the encouragement of God's word, are you steadfastly continuing in it? I would say that in many cases we could say yes, and I would say in many cases we would say no. Are you being disciplined in it? Are you being disciplined like those soldiers? We know that in the situation for D-Day, that if they were not devoted in their hearts to duty and devoted in skill and training, they would fail. It couldn't be that they had just read the Constitution that morning, thought about their families, pulled out some photos, and said, all right, we're going to go in and we're going to fight. We're going to do this right. No, it was that skill in battle that was a fruit and a reflection of true devotion and discipline to duty. Do we have that with God's word? Do we have that as we come here to worship? Or did we get up and flip through the Bible and say, only oh, I gotta read the passage? Or did we even do that? Did we even read the passage before we came in together to worship this morning? 
We know that if soldiers did that in battle, if they would try to get themselves riled up by maybe throwing in a couple of worship CDs and reading a couple of passages really fast in the morning, we know that if that was their approach to battle, there would have been much greater slaughter on that day 77 years ago. Why do we attempt to go into battle together as the body of Christ, as a pastor in preparation, do I take the word of God seriously enough and the calling to proclaim it to you enough as if our lives and souls depended upon it? I'm cut to the heart and seeing that we all, and particularly me, need to pay greater attention to the love language of God and to respond with that kind of devotion. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of the breaking of bread. These are interesting words for us. It has been clearly concluded by most commentators that I've seen that this breaking of bread is a participation in the Lord's Supper, in communion. And it is different than what you'll see later in the passage when it says that they were going home to home in, with the breaking of bread. That it was, not, it was different and it was the same at the same time. They were, it was a continuance of that feasting in their own home, but it wasn't the Lord's Supper per se. It was really the fruit and the continuing of that participation of love with one another in their own home. So it was different but still the same. This word fellowship is not just the fellowship of people getting together and having fun with each other or having a meal together. It was this koinia, this participation. They were involved. They were connected to this time at the table. They were connected to Christ and they were connected to one another. As I think about this passage, I think it's good to, to just quickly go back and to look at a time that was probably one of the greatest shadows of what it's like for us when we come to the Lord's table. After Moses had, Moses had given the covenant to the people and had read the, the covenant to the people, in Exodus 24, it says that, in verse 7, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. You see the similarity of the theme as Peter is proclaiming this new covenant to the people. They responded, what shall we do? Here, the people of God, after they heard the book of the covenant read to them, the Mosaic covenant, the law was presented to them. The people responded, we'll do it. We'll be obedient. And then it says that Moses took the blood. They were in a time of sacrificing to the Lord. It says he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to these words. And we see this connection when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He said that this cup is the new covenant of my blood. 
We already see a semblance of that with baptism and how we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. These are those love languages, these systematic connections to how God works with his people. He marks the people in representative ways. One, in the cutting of the heart through repentance, and then the forgiveness of the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ. We see it in circumcision, we see it in baptism, but here we're beginning to see, as it goes to verse nine in Exodus 24, it says, then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet as if were a pavement, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They, they beheld God and they ate and drank. There's a lot packed in here that's very interesting. It says it names four people. It names Moses. It names Aaron. It names Nadab and Abihu. And then references the 70 of the other elders that went up to God and they saw God. They saw something amazing. They saw God and they said it, it was like they, he was on a, standing on pavement like sapphire stone that was like the heavens itself. And they ate with him. They ate with God. Now, if you know the stories of these four men, you know Moses, and you know Moses really well, and you know Aaron, and if you know your Bible well enough, you know Nadab and Abihu. Children, adults, what happened to Nadab and Abihu? Did things end well for them in the story? No, it did not. Why did it not end well for them? They offered strange fire to the worship of the Lord. Now, I'm not sure why God put their names and didn't list maybe a few of the other 70, but it is encouraging to me in light of the instruction that we have of the Lord's Supper from Paul in Corinthians it's interesting that the, one of the passages that we use that is the most, one of the most primary passages for instruction in the institution of the Lord's Supper in the epistles is in the middle of conflict amongst God's people. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to be Moses or one of the other 70 elders? And here you have Aaron, and Aaron is with you, and then you're going to the Lord in an amazing visual display that we cannot even really put our minds around. They're going to the Lord and they're going to eat with the Lord. And can you imagine that maybe a few moments before that moment occurred in just some common conversation, somebody say, Aaron, you, Aaron, do you remember that time just not too long ago when God gave us the tablets and you decided to make a golden calf? Remember that? Man, that was stupid. Or maybe talking about Aaron. <laughs> Do you remember? What, what, Aaron is with us. He is going. We're going up to see the Lord. Do you Man, you remember how that was a really bad idea. 
this whole golden calf idea. Not even knowing what we know about Nadab and Abihu, I appreciated what Jonathan prayed this morning, that he, God calls sinners to come and to worship him. Here we see this moment of grace that God, he knew Aaron. He knew what Nadab and Abihu was going to do. And he calls them together so he could show his glory to them. That he would be giving them a taste of what it would be like in what we can see now happening in the early church and what we will participate in in just a few moments. This participation of going to the table with a bunch of sinners and coming to the Lord. Knowing some of the weaknesses that our brothers and sisters have had and knowing the very likelihood that there will be more weaknesses exposed. But they are called here. They are devoted with steadfast continuing to come to the Lord, to come to his table, his broken bread and poured out cup. This body given for you and blood poured out, sprinkled and poured out on you and told to you to drink and to take, to cleanse not just what's on the outside, but to cleanse and to cut what's on the inside. We cannot come and be devoted to this table unless we are devoted to come to this table with sinners. So you can't take communion by yourself. It doesn't even make sense, communion. It's people. We have to come together. We have to pull one together and put our arms around each other and say, we are nothing but a bunch of sinners. And God is letting us come before his glory and not just be reminded of what he had done on the cross, but to participate in it. To lay our sins at the table and before one another. You know, in that Corinthian passage in chapter 11, when Paul is admonishing the church at, church at Corinth, he says, when you all get together, you're, you're, you're a bunch of gluttons, you're skipping line and you're getting drunk. It's like you're missing the whole point. Don't you have tables at home where you can eat? You come here starving and you just don't care about other people? There's a lot of grace in this admonition, though, that maybe I hadn't seen as much as I see it now. He says that we are to come to this table not in an unworthy manner, but we are to come discerning the body. A lot of times in my history in the Reformed Church, we have been admonished to make sure you come to the table with a clear conscience and that we don't have any all against one another. And, and that's good, and that is a right thing, and it is applicable. But this whole idea of discerning the body, do we come to the table 
willing to carry the burdens of the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters in Christ with them? Are we willing to even come to the table where we know we're working with them, but we haven't quite gotten there together where we're working close enough and even admonishing one another about the weaknesses that we see in one another, but that we're coming together in grace, knowing that we are all hungry, but we're all famished in our weaknesses? Or are we more like the gluttons and the drunkards? You might say, well, I never... I don't take a lot of bread. I don't, I don't drink a whole lot of the wine. I don't, I don't try to get drunk or filled on this particular time of the Lord's Supper. But do we come often maybe to the table in a self-righteous manner where we're like, you know what, I, I'm doing everything fine. I've, I think I'm clean of my own alt. And this is just me and Jesus. can't believe this other person's coming up here with me knowing that they should be more repentant can't believe this other person you know i'm not even going to think about them i'm just going to think about me and jesus there moses his brother yeah you know, i don't know what kind of it doesn't give us the kind of conversations that moses and aaron had like what were you thinking i was only gone for a few minutes Coming together. Coming together to the table. Are we drunkards for our own self-righteous praise? Or are we willing to come together and be devoted to each other and in the fullness of bearing the burdens of our sins and weaknesses and then being devoted to feasting on the grace and mercy, the work and the power of Jesus Christ over sin? And do we pray? Do we pray as if we are going into battle together? Are we beseeching the almighty God to bless our endeavors with one another? Or are we going to try to do this battle on our own? Do we have that much confidence in ourselves? Do we have that much confidence in our own personal devotion and our own personal skill in battle that we think that we can take on this war being proclaimed over and over again to be before us that, hey, you're not just dealing with flesh and blood, you're dealing with powers and principalities straight from hell, and they are savage. And the place that they're going to attack first is your heart. So what are we to do? Peter, what are we to do? God, what are we supposed to do? Well, simply, we should start by reading the Bible. Being devoted to our devotions. That's what I grew up under the synonym to be. Have you done your devotions this morning? I used to get kind of irritated with that terminology. I don't know why. I guess because I wasn't doing them. But it means what it means. Are you devoted to the word of God? Do you, are you starting first in your own closet? Do you have a, a reading plan? Do you meditate on the word? Or you just run through it real quick and go, okay, whoosh, I got a, got a whole paragraph in today. Or I got a whole chapter in today. Man, I read a whole book of the Bible, Jude, today. And I'm doing good. 
But are you reading the Bible in your life? Are you committed to reading? Are you reading the Bible together? Are you reading it in your family? Are you proclaiming it with one another? Do you have someone in your life where you discuss and encourage one another and admonish one another in the word? When you admonish one another, do you reference the word? Or do you just say, you get on my nerves? (laughs) Are you more concerned about your nerves or the glory of God? And when you encourage each other, are you pulling from the world or are you pulling from the promises that are declared in God's word. When you participate in the Lord's Supper, do you come prepared, not just in trying to make sure, did I say something wrong to that person earlier? And again, I'm not ditching that, that's good. You need to be thinking about the words that come out of your mouth and the things that you're doing, but don't look at it in this ritualistic, pharisaical way like, you know, a few minutes before coming to church, you're thinking, okay, I'm trying to remember, did I do this right or wrong? Are you devoted in your life, not just to being faithful to repent to one another of your own wrongdoings, but to carry the burdens of one another in your prayer as you come to this table, remembering that you're not just coming by yourself when we come here, we are participating together. I say, hold the bread and hold the cup and we will take together. We will take the forgiveness of God together. We will repent together and acknowledge together that we have failed the almighty and righteous, powerful God. When you are in your devotions in word, are you in devotion to prayer? Are you begging out to God? Are you praising God? Do you find every opportunity to be drawn in all of God? Do you hope in God? When you pray for the church, do you spend more time Reminding God of all the weaknesses of one another, or are you reminding God what God actually told you to do, which is to remind him of his strength and his power over our weaknesses? Do we proclaim out to God with hope that he will overcome our weaknesses together? Do you pray with one another? Do you pull each other aside and say, hey, can we pray about this together? Will you pray with me? I can't do this on my own. Would you pray for me? And are we praying as a congregation? Are you devoted to take what's going on in your own personal life, in your own family's life, And to come together as the body of Christ and pray together. You may think I'm stretching it a bit to say that this is a portion of the fruit of the Spirit. But when we go to Galatians, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have 
crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The fruit of the Spirit would be manifesting in a body of people who are devoted with steadfast continuance to the Word of God and to the participation, not just in a ritualistic taking of the bread and the wine, but to come to the table together and to hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the fruit of the Spirit. Romans 7, 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died, who have died to the law through the body of Christ. Remember what was said about the fruit of the Spirit. There is no law for those who have these fruits. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. The Heidelberg Catechism says it this way. It says, what do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, one and all, as members of the Lord Jesus Christ, are partakers with him in all his treasures and gifts. Secondly, that each one of us must feel bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the advantage and welfare of of other members. We come to this table together. We come to this table carrying each other's sins. God is not just sitting here going, okay, you're good over there and you're not so good, or yeah, you've done your, your due diligence to make sure that your accounts are all clear. I'll pay attention to you guys and... I'm going to bring judgment on these guys. If you remember, Paul says, the reason why some of you are sick and are dying is because you're coming to the table only focused on yourself. Don't come to this table unless you're going to come together. If you're not seeking the mercy for all of us, don't seek it at all because you can't have it. God won't give it to you. God will not give it to you if you're not seeking his mercy for every single one of us and for our community. We'll talk about that in a few Sundays. Let us pray. Our Heavenly